You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. The sun is shining, and I already feel like my day is better because of that. I don't know when the last time we saw the sun around here. It's a hard time of year, isn't it? Uh, well, if we don't know each other, I'm Nick. I'm the pastor here in Alani Life. Uh, it's good to be here on a Sunday with you. This is my favorite part of the week. Now is the time in our service where we change our focus of our worship and we study the Bible together. We continue worshiping as we do a Bible study. It's my favorite part of the week. Well, if you were here last week, you know that we are in the middle now of a five-week series covering the book of Judges found in the Old Testament. As we we reflected on last week, this book, it's a historic narrative. What we mean by that is it's a true story from history. It tells of God's people, Israel, as they begin to take the land that he has given them, as they begin to live in the place where he has provided and are his people. And you may remember that, that we reflected on some people say this book is rated R, and that's a fair statement. And we saw that last week as Ehud assassinated the king of Moab. We're going to see that again this morning as well in our story. Despite the fact that there are questionable actions, that there are murder, that there's deception, there's ugly choices that God's people, that these judges ultimately make and fumble their way through, we see God at work in this book. It's a graphic tragedy of God's people sliding further and further away from him. But in that tragedy, his mercy shines brightly. The book of Judges shows God's people on a downward spiral away from him and into chaos. Yet throughout, God listens, he has compassion, he intervenes in the chaos and delivers his people. The book of Judges reveals God's mercy in chaos. Remember, that's the thing we want to see each week that we're going to uh, be called to see overall in this whole book. And if you haven't felt that longing for God's mercy and chaos in your life, you will one day. I assure you, life will become chaos, and you will cry out to the Lord. In that time, he'll have compassion and show mercy. And so, there we go. Uh, Reflexes, yeah. I don't play sports that require reflexes, but anyways. Um, uh, Where are we at? So if you remember nothing else, right, in this whole series... Go all the way up, yeah. Thanks, musicians, for helping me out here. Right, so if you remember nothing else in this entire series, remember that God longs to show mercy and chaos to you. When life's chaotic, when you feel oppressed, when you feel weighed down by the brokenness of the world or your life, cry out to God, and in his mercy, he'll show compassion and, and deliver you. And so... Remember that this book, right, we we talked about this last week, it it follows a predictable cycle, right? Israel, they're going to forsake God. Then he's going to let them become oppressed by the the people groups around them. They're going to cry out to God. He's going to have compassion and then raise up a deliverer to rescue them. That's the cycle of judges, and it repeats over and over. Each week as we look at a new judge, we'll see that cycle. Each time the people, they will get further and further from God. They will look less and less like his people, less like a light to the nations. That's the downward spiral of judges that we're following. So today, we meet a new judge. Today, we look at the story of Deborah. It's found in chapters 4 and 5 of the book. 
Now, here's some fun and unique aspects to this, to this story, to Deborah's narrative. Deborah is the only female judge in the entire Old Testament in this book. But not only is she the only female judge, she serves a dual role. She's a prophetess and she's a judge. What do I mean by that? Well, she's a judge. She's a deliverer, someone who, who brings about God's rescue to the people in this time of chaos. But she's also a prophetess. She speaks for God. She is a spokesperson for God. She follows in the footsteps of Moses in that way, right? God, God speaks through her. Now, if you remember from last week, Ehud, he was just a gutsy dude that God used to bring about his, his ultimate goal. Deborah, no, she speaks on God's behalf. She's been recognized as a prophetess, and she's going to be a judge. She's going to be a leader of the people. I think this speaks to God's view, high view of women. This is a high calling. This is a strong woman. She can do a lot, and he places a lot on her shoulders. There's another fun fact about this. This is one of the only places in the Bible where you're going to read a narrative followed immediately by Hebrew poetry that tell of the same thing. And so it's a great place to study if you want to try to understand Hebrew poetry. If you've ever struggled to understand the Psalms or uh, some of the prophets, you can read the poetry and look at the narrative story and start to understand what is going on there, how they think about poetry and how it tells of the, the story of what happened. So it's a fun side-by-side comparison. So, so there's some fun facts, things that you can entertain your roommates with or share over dinner conversation with your besties. It's great conversation. Um, right, so we, we reflected on, right, the, the overarching uh, theme of the book of Judges is God's mercy and chaos. But specifically, in this story of Deborah, we're going to see that the Lord is a warrior. He goes before us and protects us and delivers us. We're going to see that God fights on our behalf. That's the beautiful truth of Deborah's tale. That's the beautiful truth that we're going to see today. So let's jump in. Let's dive into this narrative. Now, we know how the story is going to start, right? It follows the cycle. God's people, they're going to forsake him. They're going to turn away from him, start serving the other gods. They're going to be disobedient. So let's read. Right away, verse 1. It's real brief. And the people of Israel again, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was our previous judge. We talked about him last week. He dies. The people do evil again. They turn again from God. Again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's been about 80 years. Remember, that's Ehud. there was peace for 80 years after Ehud had king, killed King Eglon. And the people, they've been rescued from that oppressor. Now, what's significant about 80 years? 80 years is about as long as it would take for a generation to pass away and a new generation to rise up. A new generation that only hears of God's deliverance from stories, that only knows of the oppression that they were rescued from through stories. A generation that lives side by side with others in the land that start to wonder, why don't we cover our bases and worship those gods too? Maybe we'll get a better harvest just like they expect to. Why don't we just cover our bases? I don't really want Molech mad at me, so I'm going to go sacrifice to him too, right? We'll We'll cover everything. Talk to Yahweh, talk to him. And so what happens, right? They forsake God. They turn away. They're oppressed. They're overrun by the rulers around them. God removes his protection and they're overrun. Verse 2, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heresheth-Hogoyim. Enter Jabin, the king of Canaan. 
with his military commander, Sisera. These are the new oppressors of God's people. This king, he draws our mind back to Joshua, if you've read that book, if you're familiar with the original conquest of the land. Jabin, king of Hazar, was totally destroyed by uh, Joshua and the troops. God gave them victory over him. So this is likely the remnant of his dynasty. This is the family name continued on in that area, and, and they've regained their stronghold as the people have forsaked God. Now, Sisera, he's likely a Hittite or Philistine mercenary. He's a gun for hire. So as, this, as Jabin takes over power and gains, uh, his, amasses his land and territory, he hires the strong Philistine or Hittite to, to command his army, the oppressive uh, military might of the day. Sisera, he's our primary oppressor. He's the one we're going to deal with. He's the one the narrative mostly interacts with. Jabin's sort of an afterthought. <clears throat> So the territory, I think we got a map up here. So the territory of Jabin, it's up in the north of, of the promised land, right? And, and uh, they, they become, these people become their, their new oppressors, right? Jabin, it's mostly going to be the, the northern tribes that are oppressed or, or feel his, their weight. So I'm having a hard time doing this. <laughs> so yeah, so Jabin, he lives up north near the, the Sea of Galilee, right, way up there. I sort of tried to give you an arrow. Sisera, he lives over near the, his headquarters, his military base. It's probably over by the Mediterranean Sea. So the distance between those, probably about 40 miles for scale, right? It's not massive. It's like here to Kickapoo or something, right? It's, it's not super far away. Uh, so God's people, they've forsaken him. They found themselves oppressed again. And then what do we expect next? They're going to cry out, right? They're going to ask God to deliver them. Let's read verse 3. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had, he is Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. 900 chariots of iron. This makes Jabin and Sisera the superpower of the ancient Near East at the time. The northern plains of Israel, they would have been brutally controlled by their military might. They had the upper hand, the advanced technology, the super weapon of the day. This powerful mercenary, Sisera, he has his boot on the neck of God's people. It happens for 20 years, and they cry out, ultimately, asking for God's deliverance. And so we know what comes next in the cycle, right? God, in his mercy, will hear his people, and he will raise up a deliverer. It's time to meet our judge. You guys ready? Let's, let's meet Deborah. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, the judge, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now Deborah, that's our new judge. Fun fact, her name means B, which is, I don't know what we're supposed to do with that, but any study Bible or commentary you open is going to tell you that. It's just, that's what her, her name means. She's a prophetess and judge, like we already reflected on. She serves a dual role. She sits in the hill country of Ephraim. This is significant. Uh, it's in the middle of the country, the middle of, of the tribes. All people can have access to her. And she sits under the palm of Deborah, which is kind of convenient for her, right? Like, where's Deborah? Oh, she's under the palm of Deborah, right? Yeah. Uh, I imagine that, that tree was named after she started sitting there. So Deborah's here. She's in the middle of the land, right, beside Bethel. 
Uh, we got our map. Let's see where Deborah's at. Uh, okay, so she's sort of down in the middle there. The fact that she's outside the city of Bethel is significant. She's not in the city. She's not in where the people are, where there would have been a house of worship. No, the, like that's where the Levites are, where the priests. And because of uh, the people forsaking God, because they have turned away, the priesthood would have been ineffective. They would have been poor mediators. The people aren't listening to them, obviously. So they're no longer God's guides for his people. And so he raises up a prophetess and stations her outside the city. She's doing something new. So Deborah, she's prophesying near Bethel, and God, he's, the, he's providing her as the substitute for the religious establishment. She's speaking for God. She's the voice of God in chaos. And so it's, it should come as no surprise at what comes next. As the people cry out, Deborah springs to action. The Lord gives her a word, and she calls together. She calls together the military to stand against Sisera, their oppressor. Let's keep seeing what happens in our story. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather the men from Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you at the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So Deborah calls Barak, a military commander in Israel. She calls out to him. That's the word from the Lord. And from what we can tell, Barak, he lives probably down south over there, south of the Sea of Galilee. So she's, she's calls, she calls out to him. She tells him to gather troops and take him to Mount Tabor. That's about, probably about 10 miles from where he lives, so not super far, right? So Barak has been commissioned by Deborah, and therefore God, right? She's a prophetess speaking for God. All he needs to do is obey God's word. God's called him. He just needs to listen. God is ready to deliver Sisera. His chariots, his troops, everything, his military might stripped from him, give them into the hands of Israel. Their cruel overlords can be a can be removed. God's provided the general, the place, the forces. He tells him where the battle's going to be. All Barak needs to do is obey, right? What does he do? How does he respond? Let's keep reading. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going Will not, meet your, will not lead to your glory. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. So Barak, he's talking to a known prophetess. He knows this woman speaks for God. She's already prophesied, the Lord is going to do this. She tells the truth says, Sisera will be delivered into your hands. The battle will be won. And he's afraid. He hesitates. He hedges his bets. I will go if you go with me. If you don't, I won't. Right? I'm not sure how this whole conversation goes. We only got this snapshot, right? But uh, I imagine it went something like this, right? I'm I'm sure he had some objections. Listen, Deborah, 10,000 Israelites against 900 iron chariots and all of their troops, right? Uh, they are the military superpower. That's, those aren't good odds, trust me. 
come on, Deborah, I'm the military guy here. Uh, we're just a bunch of shepherds and farmers. Don't you realize that? Like, and remember, Deborah, in chapter one, we didn't do so good against iron chariots. Like, they, they, they set us back. They, we couldn't overrun them. This, no, Deborah, I think this sounds like a death sentence. You got something against me? Are you sure you're speaking for God? I think this is his objections. I can, I can feel them coming off the page. I'll go only if you go with me, right? So he says, he wants assurance. You go with me. You're the prophetess. You're the one that God's going to protect, speak for. You come with me. You make sure it happens. And Deborah, she assures him, she will go. I will go with you. But because of his lack of faith, the glory will not be his for defeating Sisera, right? That's what she says, plain and simple. Sisera, he's going to meet his demise, but it'll be at the hands of a woman. Which, when we read that, right, we immediately seem, assume Deborah, right? I'm sure Barak did too. I'm sure, I mean, maybe even Deborah thought that's what God was speaking through her. So these two, they set out, right? They do just as the Lord revealed. They gather 10,000 men and they head to Mount, Tara, uh, Mount Tabor to head into battle. Let's see what happens next. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Hobab the father of Moses, of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanahanim, which is near Kadesh. All right, yeah, it's pretty random, huh? <laughs> Right, Heber, right, the Kenite. Everyone knows good old Heber, right? With his tent over there by the tree, right? I mean, this is super random. It just kind of breaks in. It's, it's like an odd detail, right? It's like Ehud's left-handedness or Eglon's weight, right? So far in this book, we've had these, these odd details inserted in the narrative, and it's jarring. It breaks us from, from what's going on. Um, Maybe as you're reading the monotony of uh, these places and names and things that you, you can't track, all of a sudden there's another one, and you're not sure how it fits. To me, it's funny. I think it's hilarious. Uh, Heber over by that tree in that place. But we know so far in the book of Judges, if anything holds true, this is going to be significant. There's a point to this. There's a reason that, that uh, we've, we've broken into the narrative. The narrator, he reminds us of who, the, who this guy is, right? Who, the, who are the Kenites? They're, they're Moses' in-laws, right? They're not Israelites. They're sort of like their cousins, we learned in chapter 1 that they settled down south in the desert. They're way down by the, the tip of the Dead Sea. And the, the land there, it's, it's arid. The climate's different. It's, uh, it's a hard place to, to grow crops, apparently. Uh, and so Heber, he, he decides he's not for it. He doesn't like it anymore. He's sort of a, a lone wolf. He wants to head out. And so he heads way up north. And he goes up to about where everyone else is gathering. So it's significant. This man whose, whose tribe is all staying down south has now taken off and headed north. Uh, he settles right where God needs him, near an oak tree in, near Kadesh. Let's keep reading. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, <clears throat> Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him. From Hereth, Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Keshon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his armies before Barak by the edge of the sword. 
and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Heresheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. The bait is taken. Sisera gets word that Barak has assembled forces. He calls on his 900 chariots, his military super weapon, and all of the men that he can gather, all of the men that are with him, to go into battle. I get a sense this guy's excited. He gets to flex his military muscles, show his, his superpower, his superiority, his vast intelligence, and he heads in to squash this would-be rebellion to continue and further his cruel dominion over God's people. That's not how it goes, right? Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? It's the word of Deborah, the word of the Lord. And that's just what happened. We're told that the Lord routed Sisera before Barak and his men. It was so bad that Sisera deserts his men and his chariot and flees on foot, right? The guy's running away. Military superpower, the dominant general, is fleeing on foot. Verses 14 and 15, they are the center of the narrative. They reveal the key message of Deborah's story. God is a warrior. He is the one who orchestrated the battle, executed the plan, and destroyed this dominant military power. The battle belongs to the Lord. He is the victor. He is the warrior. The Lord is a warrior. He has gone before us to protect and deliver us. He went before the Israelite army, and he eliminates the superior force they face. He delivered them. Now, we learn from the poetic retelling of this in in chapter 5 that how he did this was through a storm. A storm sent Sisera's horses into a panic. It was a flash flood over the Kishon River, and the chariots, they get probably mired. They get way down in the mud. They can't move, and they can't navigate, and there's panic and chaos. And this allows God's army to come in and, and destroy them, to put them to the sword. This overconfident force is cut down by God who uses a, a storm and the natural elements he's already created. Let's read those verses from, uh, from the, the poetry side of things. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might, then loud beating the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. God wins the day. Barak and his armies, they mop up the remaining forces, pursuing them all the way back to Sisera's headquarters. Not a man was left. But Sisera himself, he's on the loose, right? He fleed. Remember, Deborah, she prophesied that he would fall at the hand of a woman not Barak. There's still unfinished business. Let's see what happens. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Heber, he's back, right? <laughs> our odd detail comes back into view. Well, let's, let's recap our, 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 the battle and what's just happened before we, we go on, right? Um, if I can do this. I got, a, I got a pointer because I think that's going to help. Let's put our, our battle map up on the screen. So we got, we got a battle map, hopefully. Yeah, here we go. 
All right. So Barak and Deborah, they gather forces up here, right? About 10,000 men, and they march down to Mount Tabor. This is where the battle's going to take place, right? Sisera, he's over here in his headquarters, and he hears about it. So he, he gets excited. He gathers his forces, 900 chariots, and all the men he can gather, and they march over to Mount Tabor, right? The battle takes place in the city outside, uh, outside the city near the Kishon River. And we know that God brings a storm, a flash flood, and then Sisera, he flees and he runs up here to near that tree where Heber's hanging out, right? So uh, Sisera arrives at, uh, at Heber's place and he meets Heber's wife, Jael. He thinks himself safe, right, because they have an agreement. His king, Jabin, has an agreement with Heber, and so this must be a safe place. Let's see how that turns out for him. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her and into her tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes to ask you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died, as one would. Sisera falls at the hand of Jael, right? Prophecy fulfilled. This woman has slain him. He's weary from battle and his long run from the battle, uh, and he meets Jael. As he's fleeing, she sees the opportunity. She assures him, you will be safe. Find rest here. He lays down, he fills his belly with milk, and he falls asleep, believing he's safe. That couldn't be further from the truth. Quickly, Jael, she picks up a a tent stake and a hammer. She approaches the mighty general, the military superpower, and she drives the stake through his temple all the way into the ground. He's dead. And that is the end of Sisera and his cruelty, with his dominant oppression of God's people and the northern part of the land. God's sovereignty is on display throughout this narrative, but it is prominent here in the falling of Sisera. Remember, a random non-Israelite was unhappy with an arid desert in the south, and so he decides to move north and settle in the plains. He made an agreement with an oppressive King Jabin that led to his general feeling at ease. But but this non-Israelite, he also married a woman with some creativity, didn't he? a woman with a penchant for murder. And as Sisera flees the battle, he's carried along to her where he thinks he's safe. Now, we have no idea why this woman decides to kill this man. text doesn't offer us an explanation. It just tells us what happens. It doesn't tell us that God inspired her, that God caused these actions, that he even condones these actions. This is what happens. That's all it tells us. But we do know that God knew it was going to come about. He foretold it through Deborah. He knew her intentions 
and he allows those intentions to be carried out to accomplish his purposes. He knew it from the beginning. Deborah saw it, and she, she warned of it. With that, the rescue of God's people, it continues on to completion as they press back against Jabin, who is now stripped of his military. Verses 23 and 24 close the narrative. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, unless we we were tempted to forget the narrator, he makes it absolutely clear. God was the one that subdued Jabin. The victory is God's because God is a warrior who goes before us and protects us. The battle was the Lord's. He won it. Now, side note, there's a funny pun in verse 23 uh, that we miss in English. Uh, In Hebrew, it says, Jabin, the king of Canaan, was Cana, was subdued on that day. So it's sort of, when you're reading in Hebrew, you're like, ha ha, that's funny. Uh, More impressive dinner topics for you to share. Uh, Rescue has come. God's mercy shines brightly in the wake of the battle victory, and there's a place, there's peace in the northern Israel. Well, at least for 40 years, there's peace, right? We know the cycle will repeat, and next week we'll get to see how it repeats again. Come back and hear Alan as he shares with us on that. Well, in this story, we've seen that the Lord, uh, band, you can start making your way up at this point. We've seen that the Lord is a warrior. He is the one that orchestrated the battle, set the strategy, and ultimately routed the superior military power. Barak and the Israelite army, they had a role to play. They were responsible to respond to the call of the Lord, to be obedient. They were responsible to do what God had asked them to do. They cooperated with God in the battle, but ultimately he was the one that won the war. He went before them. He went before them in the form of a storm and a flood and fought ahead of them and beside them. He delivered Sisera into the hands of a woman. In our lives, we need to let God be the warrior who fights our battles. When we are tempted to control our image, to hide the facts of of what we've done wrong, or to untag ourselves from pictures that don't maybe uphold the image we want on social media, right? When we do these things, we, we, are, we are giving in to the temptation to control, the, control, uh, control our image, to fight our own battles rather than let God be in control of our reputation. Let God be the one uh, who protects us. You know, when we're tempted uh, to shape the narrative to make ourselves look better, right? When we're caught in sin or, or to paint ourselves in a better light, make our sin look less egregious. When we do these things, we fall to the temptation to fight our own battles rather than being repentant and confess. We need to let God fight our battles, let God be in control. Let's cooperate with him through repentance. When we act out of a place of defensiveness, it could be as simple as this. When we're defensive instead of apologizing for our wrong. When our sin doesn't break us, but we we defend it. We play the victim card and we point out how our confronter is just as bad, right? Like, I know I left the dirty dishes on the sink and and we disagreed about that, but you ate my Pop-Tarts last week, so we're even, right? It doesn't matter, right? When we're defensive like that, we, uh, we give in to the temptation to fight our own battles, to control rather than let God be in control. 
whatever battle of sin you face in your life, because we all battle against sin in our lives. God wants to fight that alongside you. He wants to be your deliverer. He wants to go before you and, and win that battle. All you need to do is cry out and cooperate with him. He goes before you. The Lord is your warrior. Let him be. He wants to fight our battles. Our job is to cooperate. Just cry out and ask for our deliverer. And I know all these things to be true because it is so evident in the gospel. We know because that God is a warrior that fights our battles for us because he has already fought against the most oppressive overruler we have ever had. Our long-standing oppressor, sin, was defeated on the cross. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, God routed the oppressive forces of sin. He drove a tent stake through the head of, our mili- of the military commander of the evil one. And he will return to ultimately dethrone Satan in the coming battle in the final days. He will subdue the king of Canaan. The Lord is our warrior. Let's let him fight for us. Will you pray with me?